We are in a study through the book of Acts here at Resurrection Church. So I invite you to, if you have your Bibles, to turn with me. We're going to start in Acts 23, but we're really going to study chapter 24 today. But if you just turn with me to Acts 23, Acts 23, picking up right where we left off in verse 25. Acts 23, verse 25. I like to hear pages turning. Because the Bible's not a screenshot. I'm serious. It's not a screenshot, right? I don't mind turning on iPads and such, but the Bible, the Bible's alive and active. And... I'm only 40, but I have a, you can call it old school if you want. I like holding the book. Amen? Verse 25, chapter 23. So, and he, talking about the tribune, the Roman, local Roman commander, I'm going to bring those of you that haven't been with us up to speed in just a minute, but he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, that's the tribune's name, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized, talking about the apostle Paul, by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon him with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when, he was dis disclosed, when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with them. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help. Father, as is always right, anytime we come to your word, whether personally or corporately, we ask that your Holy Spirit would help us, help our minds and hearts to be open, to receive from you. Uh, your word bears fruit and increases wherever it goes, and that's not based on who preaches, um, because it's not about how smart or clever a communicator is. This is about how powerful your word is. And so we want to hear from you, and we ask that you would speak, and that we would all be good hearers. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So let me, let me catch you up on the context. Um, the Apostle Paul, who was really the greatest missionary that ever lived, um, has come to Jerusalem. He's nearing the end of his ministry career. Uh, he was led by the Lord to Jerusalem. When he got there, he faced all kinds of trouble, specifically from some, for, from some Jews from Asia Minor, a, a city called Ephesus, where he ministered for three years. They came to Jerusalem, they found Paul in the temple, and they jumped him, literally jumped him, and were beating him with the intent to kill him when the local Roman commander, known as the Tribune, rescued Paul. He intervened, and he pulled Paul out of there. And ever since that time, he's been trying to figure out what 
to do with Paul because there's a problem. Paul is not just a Jew, he's a Roman citizen. If he was only a Jewish citizen, the tribune likely would have already executed him. Let's just do away with this problem. We don't need all these riots. I might lose my job. I might lose my life because the Jews are, are in such turmoil. Let's just kill this guy, Paul. Problem, he's a Roman citizen, which means if the tribune executes him or even punishes him without convicting him of violating Roman law, he could lose his life, his job too. So where we left off last week, the tribune has just had it trying to figure out what to do with Paul. So he's going to hand Paul up the food chain to Felix, the governor, the local Roman governor. This guy, Felix, occupies the office that Pontius Pilate once held. You remember Pontius Pilate? He's the one who condemned Jesus to death. So this is where the office that Felix now sits in. And this tribune sends Paul with 470 soldiers under the cover of night to get him safely to Felix with a letter that says, look, I don't know what to do with this guy. Felix, you figure it out. And that's where we are. Now, here's another significant point. When Paul was first saved, there was a prophecy, if you will, over Paul's life. Jesus said that Paul was going to speak to the Gentiles, to the Jews, and to kings. Now, the interesting thing is, Paul's nearing the end of his ministry career, taking three missionary journeys, and he has not yet spoke to kings. He has not yet testified of Christ to that upper echelon of Roman government. But God has been providentially working in Paul's life to get him in front of Felix, the governor. Now, this is not the only high-ranking official that Paul's going to speak to. We're going to see Paul keep going up the ladder next week and the week beyond, Lord willing. But Paul is there with Felix in Caesarea. It's about 60 miles down the hill from Jerusalem. And Felix says, look, when your accusers arrive from Jerusalem, I'll give you a hearing We'll hear what this whole thing is about. You might feel sorry for Paul. I mean, this is just kind of crazy, isn't it? All this stuff going on. Thankfully, the Lord has spoken to Paul and said, look, Paul, you're going to Rome. And I know that had to encourage Paul. But Paul is in a sandstorm of rhetoric and accusations and political maneuvering and political expediency. It's just, do you ever grow weary of the rhetoric, the wars of rhetoric in our day? Do you ever just as a citizen almost feel victimized by the political maneuvering and the political expediency and the rhetorical wars that are going on over serious issues? Anybody ever feel that way besides me? I just get tired of it, right? And we feel pressure, don't we? Things get so politicized, serious issues, mind you. They get so politicized, we feel pulled in one direction or the other, like we got to land on one side of the argument or the other. And then when you endeavor to pick a side, you end up facing a mob, don't you? A lot like the ones Paul has faced with the same kind of murderous anger that Paul has faced when you pick one side or the other. Oftentimes, the wars that are being fought, the arguments that are being made are, are nothing more than just, just 
rhetoric. It's weapons of rhetoric that are endeavoring to try and deal with serious, complex issues that we face in our day. How many of you would raise your hand and say, yeah, we got some serious issues, right? I mean, violence, mass shootings. It's a serious issue, isn't it? We've got unborn babies being killed left and right. That's a serious issue, isn't it? Our government redefining the institution, the godly institution of marriage. That's a serious issue, isn't it? And then we have sickness and poverty and addiction. Those are serious issues, aren't they? How many of you understand, though, it's possible to, de to determine where you stand on an issue and miss the heart of God? Let me say it again. It's possible to know where you stand on an issue and miss the heart of God. You can get your arguments in order and totally be so far away from what it is that God is actually most concerned about. Because here's what I believe. The heart of God is focused on people, not issues. In other words, I'm convinced God is more concerned about our attitude and our approach towards people than he is about us getting better at better at voicing our opinions. Are we with me on that? In other words, God's heart for people. Do you realize that as a kingdom citizen, as a follower of Christ, we are called to minister, right? We're called to minister, right? And we're called to minister both to the people that want to hold, desperately hold on to their guns and the people who are victims of gun violence. Wasn't sure I'd get a lot of amens on that one. I'm not taking an aside. This is not a sermon about social issues. All I'm saying is we minister on both sides of the argument. Right? We are called to minister to the lady who's already had an abortion and to the pregnant teenager who's contemplating it regardless of how she got pregnant or what's going on with that pregnancy. We're called to minister to both. We're called to show love and compassion to both. We are called to speak truth to both. We are called to be Christ's ambassadors on both sides. We are called to minister to the person who's only known same-sex attraction and questions, wonders, what possible good news could the gospel be for me? Called to minister. This is not a sermon about social issues. What my concern is, is how do we maintain a pure testimony of Christ in a world full of rhetoric? How do we stand up and bear witness of Christ and make him known, lift him high in the sandstorm of arguments, accusations, lies, political expediency, and people that just simply for the sake of pride want to prove a point? Is that a good question? Worth wrestling with? I think we're going to learn something about that from Paul. Because Paul is in a sandstorm 
of rhetoric. He is surrounded by people fueled by pride, fueled by fear, fueled by political expediency. There's all kinds of false accusations and injustice that he's dealing with. And somehow, some way, in the midst of all of that, Paul stands firm in this beautiful, humble way and he makes Christ known. Without compromising, it's never the right answer to compromise biblical truth because the issues are intimidating because they're so complex. That's it, never the right answer. We never compromise. This word of God, it's inspired, it's accurate, it's eternal, it never changes. But somehow, some way, we've got to learn how to stand in the midst of arguments and rhetoric and bear witness of Christ and be focused on ministering to people, not proving our points on the issues. Somehow, Paul does that, and it's beautiful. Chapter 24, Luke lays this out for us almost like a contrast of characters. And I think he does that on purpose to highlight the purity of Paul's testimony. So here's what we're going to see. I'll give it to you. For those of you that are type A and you like the map on the front end, here's where we're going. We're going to see the hypocrisy of the Jews. We're going to see the purity of Paul. And we're going to see the cowardice of Felix. The hypocrisy of the Jews, purity of Paul, and the cowardice of Felix. You ready? Let's get to work. Verse 1, chapter 24. Verse 1, chapter 24. And after five days, remember, Felix has said, look, Paul, when your accusers get here, we'll have a trial. After five days, the high priest and Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. He's an interesting cat. Watch this. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, since through you, Felix, we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude, but to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Blah. I mean, it's just dripping off his tongue, isn't it? Who is this guy? He's a lawyer. And you know he's lying because his lips are, uh, I couldn't resist, y'all. I couldn't resist. No offense to any attorneys. I'm just playing. But he is a lawyer. He's a hired gun. The high priests have pulled him in to speak for them. And the hypocrisy is just disgusting. Listen, he says, Felix, through you we've enjoyed such peace. It's a bold face lie. Because we know this, the Jews hate, they abhor the fact that whatever level of peace they currently enjoy has come at the cost of Roman domination. They hate the Romans, Felix included, and Felix especially. The ancient Roman historian Tacitus said of Felix and his cohorts, they brought a desert and called it peace. This guy Felix is a barbarian. His efforts to squelch riots and chaos among the Jews were so bloody 
that he actually, we'll find at the end of the chapter, he's actually removed from office and a new guy comes in, a new governor comes in named Festus. And that transfer of power happened per the orders of a new Caesar that came to power. This Caesar said of Felix that his dealings with the Jews were too brutal. And do you know who that Caesar was? Nero. Nero, who by the same historian Tacitus is considered to be one of the most brutal, tyrannical, and ruthless Caesars ever to occupy the throne of Rome. And he said Felix was too brutal. The Jews can't stand this guy. Oh, but you brought peace. And by your foresight, that word is actually providence. He's, he's talking to Felix like he's a god. It's just disgusting. But where does hypocrisy come from? It comes from pride, doesn't it? Ultimately, nobody sets out to be a hypocrite. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, you know what, my New Year's resolution, I'm going to be the best hypocrite ever. <laughs> Nobody strives for that, right? What happens? Why do people become hypocrites? It's because pride fuels this hypocrisy to maintain power, prestige, money, position. That's what these Jews are doing. Their manipulation of scripture and of Jewish Law and tradition has given them power. It's given them money. It's given them prestige. It's given them position. They claim to worship God, but how many you understand? They could not be further from the heart of God. Paul is a threat. They're not here to find truth. They're here to eliminate threat. So they make their accusations. Let's keep reading. Verse five. For we have found this man, Paul, a plague. He's a pestilence, Felix. He won't go away. He just won't die. That's literally what they're saying. He's a plague. He's a pestilence, like the bubonic plague. That's how they're referring to Paul. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him by examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So they accuse Paul of being a plague, a pestilence, of a ringleader of a sect, of stirring up riots and defaming the temple. All of it is false. All of it is lies. But again, all thereafter is eliminating the threat. They have a glass house that Paul's gospel is threatening to shatter. Just like the gospel Jesus preached threatened to shatter the glass house of the Pharisees. That's what they're about. That's what they're after. That's the hypocrisy of the Jews. Now we're going to see the purity of Paul because Paul gets to respond. Verse 10. Verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. In other words, I haven't been there long enough to be a plague. Because prior to this trip to Jerusalem, which 
He only arrived 12 days previous. It's been years since Paul's been to Jerusalem. He's been ministering, right, right? In Galatia and Corinth and Philippi and Ephesus. Paul's been out doing ministry to the Gentiles. He hasn't been in Jerusalem. There's no way he could be a plague to these people, okay? He says, it's been only 12 days. And they did not find me disrupting with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple, in the synagogues, or in the city. In other words, Paul did not come into the city with an entourage, he didn't come in trying to prove a point. He didn't come in making an argument. Do you remember how he came in? Let, let, let's, let's keep reading. He says, neither can they prove to you what they now bring against me, but this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. He says, I'm not leading a sect. I worship the same God they do. Now, he believes all the scriptures point to Jesus, but he's saying, look, I worship the God of our fathers. What are they calling me a sect for? Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 16, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, so it's been a long time since I've been to Jerusalem, I came to bring alms to my nation and present offerings. He came with money to relieve suffering for Jews. Wow. And he said, while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. Now, he's referring back to, if you were here with us, you remember, Paul comes into Jerusalem and there's a rumor in the church that he was preaching against Jewish law, tradition, and the temple. And, and it's a rumor. It's not true. Paul said to the Jew, I became like a Jew. To the Greek, I became like a Greek. Paul's flexible. Paul circumcised Timothy because he planted him in a church where there were a lot of Jews and he didn't want to offend them. And so when he got to Jerusalem, the elders say to Paul, look, here's what we want you to do. We want you to go through this ritual just so nobody's offended with you. And he had to shave his head. Remember that? And pay for some guy's sacrifices. That's what he's referring to. He said, I didn't come in stirring up riots. I came in bald going through a ritual. Bald people are more holy. <laughs> right? He said, I wasn't stirring up trouble. I wasn't trying to get people on my side. Let's keep reading. He said, but some Jews from Asia, remember they were the ones that started this whole thing. They ought to be here before you and make an accusation should they have anything to say against me. He said, the very people that found me in the temple, they're not even here. He said, or else these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am here on trial before you this day. In other words, he's referring to his hearing with the Jewish Sanhedrin where he brought up the resurrection. He said, that's the only thing these guys have witnessed. You remember that statement and how it caused the infighting in the Sanhedrin, right? He said, that's the only thing they've seen. Now watch this. When he was done, they didn't say a word. They had nothing to refute him because it was all true. Now imagine, imagine if Paul had come in Jerusalem with a chip on his shoulder. Imagine if he had come in trying to prove a point, trying to rally people to his side of the argument. 
Imagine if he'd have looked at the elders and said, when they, when they told him, he said, look, we want you to go through this ritual so nobody's offended with you. If he'd have looked at them and said, y'all are crazy. I'm not going to go through that. That's not even necessary according to the law. I'm going to get some people on my side. We're going to go into the temple and we're going to have an argument and we're going to see who's right. What if he'd done that? What if he would have adopted the attitude that we often adopt is that what I'm really, what I'm really fighting is an issue. That's what I got to attack. I got to attack the issue. I got to attack the argument. And what, get lost, what gets lost in all of that is the people God's called us to minister to. What if he would have done that? What if he'd have just given up? Just said, you know what? I'm tired of being humble. I'm tired of being faithful. When in, in the midst of this sandstorm of rhetoric and people politically posturing themselves to maintain their prestige and their power, he said, I'm just tired. What if he just said, I'm just tired of all of that. I'm going to give up. I'm going to just stay in this barracks till they cut my head off or kill me in some other way. I'm done. That's not what he did. He kept maintaining the integrity of his testimony, walking in humility, being faithful, doing what he knew Christ, he knew Christ would want him to do. That's what he did. So we got the hypocrisy of the Jews, we got the purity of Paul. Now the cowardice of Felix, verse 22. But Felix having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, so he understood Christianity. He put them off. He's saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I'll decide your case. He's a procrastinator. He's a coward. He doesn't want to deal with it. He's between a rock and a hard place. I've got a riotous mob of Jews, which could cost me my job, my life. And I've got a Roman citizen that they're mad at that I can't kill or imprison or punish because if I do that, I could lose my job or my life. So I'm just not going to deal with it. I'll wait until the tribune comes up and then we'll talk about it some more. The problem with that is the tribune never shows up. He never makes the journey some 60 miles down the hill from Jerusalem to this Caesarea where Felix's office was. He never comes. He never shows up. Felix is a coward. He's a procrastinator. He's putting it off. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept, verse 23, in custody, but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So he says, right, look, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put him in prison to get the Jews to be quiet. But then I'm going to give him some unique privileges and freedoms and liberties to keep Paul quiet. See his strategy? Yeah? He's a procrastinator. And after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. He said, go away. I'll deal with you later. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. At the same time, he hoped Paul would bring him some money. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. And when two years elapsed, everybody say two years. Two years, Paul's stuffed in a closet, given some liberties, keep him quiet, keep the Jews quiet, two years. What would you have done with that time? 
I might have curled up in a ball of self-pity. Why? We have this saying in our own culture, justice delayed is justice denied, right? Justice delayed is justice denied. This is a gross injustice for Paul. He shouldn't be in prison. Nobody's proven anything. I'm being tucked away in a cell for political expediency. And this guy Felix doesn't want to deal with me. The Jews just want to eliminate their, the threat. I'm a plague to them. This is grossly unjust. I might have, I might have hired my own attorney. I might have written to Timothy and said, look, raise an offering. You know, phone Galatia. Text the guys in Ephesus. Tell them to take an offering. Get me an attorney, and then we're going to really have a showdown in front of Felix. It's not what he does. Here's what happens. Felix is married to a girl. She's not even quite 20 years old. We know that from some other ancient writings. She wasn't quite 20. She's very young. She actually was married to a, a Syrian king at first when Felix seduced her and lured her away to become his own wife. But she's Jewish. And she's intrigued by Paul. And really, in an effort to appease her, he agrees to go down and meet with Paul with her because she's anxious to meet Paul. And guess what happens? This guy that was denying Paul justice for his own political purposes, Paul shares the gospel. And I think, pretty confident about this, I think in love and compassion and kindness because Felix kept coming down to talk with him. If Felix would have come down there and Paul looked at him and said, look, you sorry, barbaric, you know, coward, you're going to hell if you don't believe in Jesus. You ever known somebody throw the gospel like a dagger at somebody, you know, like a spear? Like if he'd have done that, Felix wouldn't have come out down there and talked to him. It says Paul conversed with him about righteousness, about self-control, and yes, about the coming judgment. And it alarmed Felix. We never get any indication that he actually responded to the gospel. It alarmed Felix, but he kept coming back down there to talk to him. Paul is staying with it. He didn't waste one ounce of these two years being tucked away in a cell, being put away just to keep him quiet. He didn't waste one ounce of that time. He kept after it. In fact, most biblical scholars agree that it was during these two years that Paul helped Luke get all of his facts together for the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. He didn't waste a moment. He stayed with it. Despite the rhetoric, despite the accusations, despite the injustice, despite the political maneuvering, his attitude was, I'm going to participate with Jesus. He's called me to Rome and to speak to kings. And if Felix wants to talk, I'm not going to make my argument, try to prove my point. Or my, I'm going to talk to him about Jesus. How could Paul do that? 
Why would Paul do that? You know, there was a Danish philosopher, theologian, back in the 1800s. His name was Soren Kierkegaard. You might have heard of him. He made this statement. He said, the purity of heart is to will one thing. How many of you like your life to be about one thing? You're like, my Lord, because if it just be one thing, I mean, it's, you know, kids t-ball and soccer and work and school and church and neighborhood HOA and bills. And it's just like, it's one thing after another. And my spouse's family and in-laws. And it's just, you know, what if my life could just be about one thing? I got two jobs, three jobs. It's still not enough. What's my life could be just about one thing? The purity of heart is to will one thing. And I can't help but believe that Kierkegaard, that statement flowed out of some meditation that he had on Philippians chapter 3, verse 13. Let me read that for you. Philippians chapter 3. These are the words of Paul that he wrote from prison, by the way. And he said, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it on my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining for, forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This one thing I do. Paul's life was about one thing. Primarily, to make Christ known. One thing. In every aspect of my life, I want to make Christ known. And how many of you understand, when that's your one thing, that one thing transcends what you think you're entitled to when you face injustice. That one thing transcends your need to prove a point. It transcends your impulse to try to figure out where you land on an issue, sometimes at the expense of loving people. Because we're so afraid in the church. We're so afraid that the issues threaten the gospel. Can I tell you something? There is nothing new under the sun. We don't have any issues today that are threatening the gospel any more than they did in Paul's day. The gospel's not on trial. It will last. The kingdom of God will last forever. And the word of God does bear fruit and increase wherever it goes. It is the testimony of it. And one day, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's, we're, that's not in question. It doesn't matter what the issues are. There must, there must be something, I think, that would radically change in us if making Christ known was our one thing. That's it. If making Christ known was our one thing, what might change? How might we be able to maintain a pure testimony in a war of rhetoric, lies, political expediency? How might that happen for I just wrote a few thoughts down. Not saying they're all right. You know, you can take them or leave them. It's not scripture. But I think it's rooted in scripture. I think if we, if making Christ known was our one thing, 
I think we would find ourselves focusing less on the issues and more on ministering to people. I think if making Christ known was our one thing, instead of being deterred when we face injustice, I think we'd be fueled all the more to seize any and every opportunity, even in injustice, to make Christ known. Because how many of you know, when you face injustice, when you turn the other cheek, when you give to anyone who asks, when someone asks for your tunic, you offer them your cloak also, when you love your enemies and you do good to those who do evil against you, when you do that, you make Christ known. You're not a doormat. You're not letting people walk over you. You're actually walking in the courage and in the strength of God, making his presence known and making Christ's worth known when you do that. I think we'd find we're less motivated to argue and more motivated to serve. I'm not saying that there aren't arguments worth having. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying sometimes I think, it happens in my marriage sometimes. I want to be, I want to prove I'm right. Don't look at me like you've never done that. <laughs> yeah, you're never right. See, Jim's been married longer than me, so he knows. You're never right. So I, I just want to be right sometimes. But I've said this before, you can win an argument and lose a relationship. And what goes out the door with a relationship? Influence, effectiveness, testimony. The highest victory is not proven a point. Because Jesus said, if you want to be great, become the least. If you want to be great in the kingdom, become the servant of all. That's a game changer, isn't it? I think if making Christ known was our one thing, I think we'd be more motivated to serve than we were to argue. I think we would find, this is kind of similar to the last one, but I think we'd, we'd find that we were more interested in putting the interests of others ahead of our own and less interested in proving a point. And finally, I think that if making Christ known was our one thing, I think we would learn I think we would grow in our understanding of what it's like to participate with a God whom the Bible says it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. If, if God's more concerned about our attitude and our ministry towards people than he is about our ability to articulate our points on the issues. And if that same God is the God whose kindness leads people to repentance, it's not that God is going to ever leave people like he found them. Repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry. It's a change in thinking. So what, what, what the... The goal, the Christian mission, is for people's thinking to change about his kingdom. Right? About who he is. 
about his beauty and worth. So that's what we want is we want people's thinking to change about that. Because if that happens, how many of you understand everything else changes? We're transformed by the renewing of our. So. If that's how God changes people's thinking is with kindness. Yes, we never get any indication that Felix responded to Paul's presentation of the gospel, but he did keep coming back. And I think that's because Paul was endeavoring to be like Christ who came full of grace and truth. Paul didn't pull punches on the truth. But even staring in the face of the one who had brought injustice to him, he showed love and compassion and kindness to share with him about Christ, righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. I want that to be my one thing. I want, I want to lift him high and make him known. I don't want to just load my guns and lawyer up so that I can make a point. I want to make Christ known. Let's let that be our focus. In a world full of rhetoric, in a world full of political posturing, in a world, listen, where everybody's got a microphone. That's new. Everybody's got a stage. And I'm not trying to toot my own horn in any way, shape, form, or fashion, but not everybody's mature enough and has the character to steward a microphone. But when you got 2,000 friends on Facebook, you got a microphone and you got a platform and sometimes hiding behind the computer and just leveling your opinions, throwing them out there like weapons in the war of rhetoric is the worst thing you can do to maintain a pure testimony in a world full of rhetoric. Sometimes we've got to start to think differently. Because my one thing, I want to make Christ known. Stand with me. Lord, I want to ask that we're going to sing a little chorus. And I want to ask that you would, by your spirit, let this resonate in our souls as a prayer. That in our lives, in our world, and in our love, you would be lifted high. That would be our one thing. Because God, I, what I realize is that the rhetorical battles really aren't getting us anywhere. It's not changing anything. It's not changing people. And I think you're more concerned about people than you are issues because I think if people get changed, issues seem to get taken care of. So I ask for our church, for your body, you would make our one thing, making you known, so that in a world full of rhetoric and lies, 
pride and posturing, which we sometimes easily succumb to, that we would have a pure testimony. Testimony of the one who rules the universe and who is our Lord and Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.